Lord, thank you for this morning and this moment we have with Scripture. Uh, Father, this is a, a day set aside. It's a, it's a day set aside for rest. Lord, I hope that everyone who hears my voice is, is going to engage in rest today. We're resting because Jesus, uh, because Jesus rested in the grave and then rose from the dead and set a new paradigm a new schedule for our week, and that it's from the effort of Jesus and his complete work that we begin our our week. But we start with rest. Lord, help us as we even hear how the church works, how church authority works. Help us to say thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving me the scriptures, for being the living word. We pray, Lord, you'd help us now. Help us hear in a deep, deep way. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 is before you. Um, I have provided, uh, recognizing that some of you are uh, needing and wanting this, um, I've provided a lot of insights on the sermon page, okay? So you don't have to worry about taking a lot of notes. Um, And those are just sort of overview ideas, main ideas, and some gospel ideas. And so when you're driving home uh, and you're reflecting on this tonight, you can have something to take home with you to sort of recap. What was that about? What was that about? So I hope that's helpful for you. Um, I don't mean to turn this into a lecture hall or a seminar. Um, Preaching is a very different thing, isn't it? It's very different than a speech, right? Um, Preaching is really the exposition of Scripture, explaining Scripture, uh, if needed, illustrating Scripture, and then applying Scripture. Um, in fact, the application of Scripture is really, I think, uh, the most the most vital aspect of what's of what's to take place. Um, that's why the church needs uh, that's why the church needs pastors to know the flock, figure out. Wait a minute, this passage should be applied to this particular group of people in this way. Um, so it's, it's there's a dynamic thing going on here, isn't there? And uh, so pray. I would ask you to pray, even during the service. There's always a sermon that you prepare, and then there's a sermon that you actually give. And somewhere in there is God, by his Holy Spirit, working and using Scripture uh, in a way that is uh, for the benefit and edification of the church. Well, do you believe, let me ask this question, do you believe God cares for you? That's a pretty basic question, isn't it? Do you believe God cares for you? I think every one of you would say, sure. Right? I think God cares for me. I embrace that truth. But it's a rather general idea, isn't it? God cares for me. It's kind of vague, isn't it? Um, God is watching out for me. We're going to say, uh, before we take the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to say the the Heidelberg Catechism, part of question one, part of it, which says that God's care is such that everything in your life is subservient to his plan. In other words, God is working in all the details of your life. That's his care for you. Even the hair that falls from your head, um, Jesus said that it doesn't happen without the will of our, our Heavenly Father. The Heidelberg Catechism also famously quotes Romans 14 and says, 
that we don't belong to ourselves. Um, but we belong to our faithful Savior. So what's the shape of that care? Think about it. What's the shape of that care? Is the care that God has for us some sort of general kind of, I don't know, it kind of floats in the clouds above us. It's a general care, and we hope things work out for us. Or is there specific care? Do we belong? And is God making this belonging have real substantive shape to it? Is there a shape to God's care? Are we in charge? How about this? Are we in charge of our of our care? Are we in charge of our lives? Or are we in charge of determining how God cares for us? Well, that's an interesting question. Are we, are we in the driver's seat? Some things that come our way are acceptable to us. Some work of the church, some scripture. Some things the pastor might say. But can we say that we are the one who really determine God's care Marianne loves me. Marianne loves me uh, in a deeper way than I really wanted when I first married her. <laughs> um, Marianne has a wonderful way to love me because she points out my inconsistencies. I never asked her to do this, by the way. Uh, she wants me to grow. She wants me to improve in virtues and graces. Sometimes she points out that I have a double standard. Yep, it's true. And I tell her, think of the wives, the poor wives, who have husbands who only have one. That's something to think about, isn't it? And I give you two. See? She still doesn't buy that argument, but I thought it was kind of special, you know. Other guys can only have one, and I give you two. Anyway, so she points out these inconsistencies because she loves me. And she wants me to grow. That's what her love is for me. Now, my very flawed definition of love says this. Love me as I am. I'm wonderful. I don't really need to change or grow. Just love me as I am. You should always speak to me in terms of just loving me the way I am. Marianne's love for me is uh, persistent. It probes to the heart because she seeks to have me connect with the goodness of God's provision for me in my attitudes, goals, and pursuits. Todd, connect more consistently with the goodness of God toward you. My perception of how I need to be loved is pretty selfish and even immature. Now, the Corinthians are not asking for a true apostle to help them with true apostolic love. They're not asking that question. They are asking, they are not asking for an intervention, which is essentially going on, an intervention. The Corinthians are essentially saying, love us by giving us plenty of space. Let us be ourselves. We've got this. We've got this. Let us follow our whims, impulses, and desires. And Paul's not buying it. Not buying it. He planted the church, recorded in Acts chapter 18. He visited the church a second time, and he discovered there was trouble. He has sent Titus 
subsequent to that second trip, and Titus has reported some good progress, but remaining trouble, remaining areas of rebellion. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, he says, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Paul, to those who are unrepentant, is committed to producing, he hopes, godly grief. The Corinthians need to grieve. Sins of the mouth, slander, gossip, etc. Sins of the body, sexual immorality. Now what we're exploring today, at first glance, doesn't seem loving at all. Doesn't seem loving at all. Paul does not mince words. And for some who remain unrepentant, listen carefully to that word. Some who remain unrepentant must be carefully, lovingly, persistently loved with what is called church discipline. Again, what we're exploring today at first glance doesn't feel loving. But I want you to know, church discipline historically has been one of the signs of the church. You're thinking of Matthew 18, how the church is to function with an unrepentant person. So, church discipline, if you're shopping, shopping for a church, maybe you're impressed with something about the church. That's great. But how does the church actually function? Is there care? Is there, is there uh, counseling? Is scripture being applied to, to people's lives in a, in a personal way? Are people being loved? And that love can look like correction. That love can look like an admonishment from elders who love that person. And so you can sense, it feels a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Look at verse, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. And then kind of out of the blue, he says, he quotes Deuteronomy 19. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. My, my, how peaceful Washington could have been just a couple of weeks ago if that simple Bible verse had been presented. Um. It was a terrible thing, by the way, to have a hearing sound like a trial. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent. So notice Paul, verse 2. I warned those who sinned before, so that must have been his second visit, and all the others... And I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof, look at verse 3. So this is, this is Paul is, he's, uh, at, at times he's very difficult to understand. If you stay with him, um, you will find him, uh, and I guess... Uh, you'll see how God created a very sharp mind in him. At first, you may not understand what he's saying, but then you realize, 
Oh, that's what he's saying. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, in other words, you doubt my apostolic authority, well, I'm coming. (laughs) If you're asking, he turns the tables on the Corinthians. And he'll do it again in verse 5. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, and then a a reference to, to Christ that I'll explain a little bit. He is not weak. He, Christ, is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. I'll explain that in just a minute. Okay, those who sinned earlier and have not repented. The key word, not repented. Repented of things like sexual immorality, sensuality, sins of the tongue, gossip. Now think about this. Jesus really did rise triumphantly from the grave. And he has begun to reign over a kingdom. Some churches teach that, well, the world's dark and evil and Satan's running around, so therefore Jesus can't be reigning right now. You know that? You might hear that on popular Christian radio. There's no way. There's just no way. Jesus is going to reign in the future. Well, you just read a few chapters in the book of Acts and you'll see, wait a minute, Jesus is ascending, ascended king. And now we in the church have to figure out, yes, the existence of evil is here, and yet he is our triumphant king in the midst of this evil world. So what we have is we have Jesus. It's like he's holding court. He's in session. And he's in particular caring for his church. Watch, being watchful for his church. And he's established care for his church. The first uh, level of care uh, lasted, oh, maybe 40, 50 years or so. That is the apostles who walked the earth. They interpreted the words of Jesus correctly and applied them to various situations. We have epistles recording their thoughts on a human level, and we believe they are inspired thoughts. So there's When we think about our Bible, there's two authors. There's the divine authorship, and there's the human authorship. Okay, So the apostles are this first wave of the the reign of Jesus now bringing authority, the authority of Jesus to his people and his church. He really is king. He really is king. And so we think about how a church should think is that the church is the called-out community of faith under the kingship of Jesus. So it's not some vague thing. So Christ is in the clouds somewhere waiting, waiting in a kind of you know, doctor's lounge, you know, waiting for the end of the world. Uh, no, that's not what's, not what's happening. Now we have the Apostle Paul warning the Corinthians. He's warning them, saying that I will come with discipline to correct and to deal with the scandal Scandal that's come upon the Corinthian church. So that's one of the purposes of church discipline is to rid the church or to address scandal. Now here's the deal. Um, what happens in what happens is the the people you work with uh, may know you are a church attender, right? They may. What you think of that? So what happens is, say, there's a scandal in the church, that there's something, that, a sin in the church that is out in the community, all right? Well, 
what do most non-Christians think? They think, yeah, you guys are putting on a show in church. You're, pre, pre, you're pretending holier than thou. I really know what you're all about because of what's going on, right? Meaning, this is, this is a, a scandal on the church. Church discipline would take an unrepentant person and begin to address that issue so that the church is not, the name of Christ is not, you know, uh, dragged through the mud. So this, has a, this is an extremely important thing that the Apostle Paul is endeavoring to do. It means that he's trying to come and prepare his trip and uh, verse 2 is absolutely, really, really brilliant. And I'll tell you from my experience with this, what he does in verse 2, you may not quite see uh, readily, but it's, it's there. Verse 2 is a kind of mini-history of what's taken place. Let me just read verse 2 for you. I warned those who sinned before and all the others. That's the mini-history. And I warn them now, that's the current step, while absent. As I did when present, here's the mini-history, on my second visit, that if I come again, that was still more of the history, see it? I will not spare them. Now, somebody say, well, that was fascinating. That was really fascinating. Now, here's the deal. Paul is giving a mini-history to the Corinthians so they can't weasel out of this. Oh, excuse me. Like, what? What do you mean you're coming? Uh, what? You're concerned about uh, our gossip? What? In other words, that they would feign. I pretended like, I. Uh, well, I knew you were concerned, but I didn't know it was this serious, right? Verse 2, I'll just give you my pastoral experience here. Verse 2 is brilliant. And necessary. People do not willingly want to have their sin exposed. They do not generally cooperate with spiritual authority. They do not willingly want to be exposed. They want to be somehow seen as in some way righteous or some way not quite as, it's not quite that serious. What Paul's doing is he's keeping track of what was said. When it was said, why it was said, and where things stand. Have you ever tried to weasel out of something by obfuscating the history? by minimizing what was said, by maybe you attack the messenger instead of the message. Verse 2, brilliant. Someone can meet with a pastor. The pastor talks with them clearly and directly about their marriage or something about this persistent, what are you doing, um, uh, having lunch with your secretary three times a week. This is known in the community. 
person could say, well, I, I, uh, whoa, I remember you asked some questions, but I didn't realize it was so, this was so serious, right? By the way, a pastor in a previous area where we lived refused to listen to his elders when he was confronted with the idea that he just freely felt that he could have lunch with his secretary any time of the week. And they said, you can't do that. And he said, yes, I can. <laughs> and uh, he promptly went down the street and started a new, new church. Paul is saying that apostolic authority to bring correction, instruction, rebuke, admonition is what he intends to do. If a person has no intention of repenting, and that can be revealed over time, not just a weekend, but over time, we elders, perhaps think about this church, we'd be working with someone behind the scenes. Time goes along, time goes along. It is clear this person does not intend to turn away from sin. Now, in the PCA, we have things like an admonition, which is a formal admonition. It's done privately. And it's done based on scripture, not not the pastor's opinion, not the elder's opinion. It's scripture. A formal admonition where the person is supposed to wake up. Another aspect of this can be banning someone from the Lord's Supper for a period of time. In order to reclaim the person, not not pronounce some condemnation on them, to reclaim them, to wake them up. And, of course, if this is persistent over time, in order to remove scandal, the final step is called excommunication. And what that is saying is no Christian, no Christian engages in this behavior without repenting. We don't know their hearts, but we do know that no Christian engages in this behavior So, one of the marks of the church is the pastoral care for people and the love toward people who have to come to a place where they are remembering Christ in a way that gives them the power and strength to change. All of us are sinners. This is, we're not just suddenly saying, how did that sinner get in the church? This is shocking. All of us are sinners. All of us daily fall short. But the call of the Christian life is to continue to repent. Now, Paul mentions the idea that um, in verse 4, he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. It's essentially a summary of how the Corinthians sort of viewed Paul's weakness. And Paul's essentially saying, well, everything I've, every aspect of my interaction with you, it sure does look weak. And Paul says, that doesn't matter. 
our Savior looked weak on the cross and actually was demonstrating the power of God over, over death. And so, Paul, it, it's a kind of a very compact and uh, dense sentence there, but basically, um, God's power is at work in weakness. Now, take a look at this. Look, take a look at verse 5. Remember how, the, remember how the Corinthians were essentially asking Paul, hey, a lot of cross-examination. Hey, where are your credentials? And where, where, you know, what's the deal with you? How, how, do you? how do we know you're a real apostle, right? <laughs> Even though he's the one who planted the church. How do we know you're the real deal, right? That's kind of throughout 2 Corinthians. Now look at verse 5. Paul's turning the table on them. Hey, how do you know you're a real Christian? <laughs> verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now this bumps into the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. Paul says, test yourselves. Interesting note here that, um, we'll talk about what testing is, but interesting note that as they test themselves, and they demonstrate a change of heart. There's real traction inside them. As they test themselves, they're also going to authenticate Paul's ministry. They're also going to authenticate, wait a minute, if we're the real deal in Christ, how did that happen? It happened through the Apostle Paul. You must be the real deal. They should be examining themselves, not cross-examining the Apostle Paul. He tells the Galatians the same thing. Galatians essentially said, chapter 6, verse 4, stop comparing yourself to other people. Go one-on-one with your Lord. Romans 16 talks about being tested and approved in Christ. He tells the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says that I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So he warns people, test yourself. One of the aspects that's sort of hard to tell people, but it's true that we are in a kind of probation here. This means that, think of the, one of the great parables of Jesus, the sower and the seed, that at times there are what look like temporary conversions. I think some of you have seen this. We don't know their hearts. But there is a important testing of ourselves, including the idea of continued repentance in my life. Am I seeing that? Ask yourself this question. What was the last time you were before God's word and you asked God to reveal to you some aspect of it, some truth about it, that the word of God warms you, that you sensed your heavenly Father's love and, and embrace of you. Now, how do we test ourselves? Well, first of all, there has to be a, a desire to test yourself, and that's so vitally important. If you're not a believer here, there probably isn't a desire to test yourself because there's nothing to test there. 
some Christians would say that's sort of beneath them. It's sort of insulting. After all, I'm a third-generation Scottish Presbyterian or something. So the idea that someone would be called upon to test themselves, they're somewhat offended by it. This is how nominalism creeps into a church. There's the assumption that people are, are, are saved. There's the assumption that people are, 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 tr- are, are tr- the true deal, true thing. How do I test myself? First of all, is there a desire? Second, of course, Scripture is, is central. Is there evidence, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, evidence that I'm trusting Christ? I'll post these, give these for you later. Is there evidence of obedience to God? Matthew 7, 21. Is there the pursuit of holiness? Hebrews 12. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. Love for other Christians, 1 John. Positive influence on others. We're the light, we're the city placed on the hill, Matthew 5. Adhering to apostolic teaching. That's a theme in 1 John, 1 John 4. And then the testimony of the Holy Spirit within us. That's Romans 8, 15 and 16. All who are... All those who are of God or of the Spirit are being are walking with the Spirit, right? Really what this is talking about is the difference between conduct and spiritual experiences. Who are you? What are you like when no one else is watching? Test yourself. Test yourself. Now, under the flawed leadership of elders, if a person is hardened in their stance toward uh, and choosing a lifestyle that is out of accord with Scripture, the elders have to help that person awaken. And, of course, they're going to use Scripture alone to help that person awaken. Another, another question for us is, do, am I continuing in a life of repentance and faith? Now, I want to just encourage you. That maybe this feels heavy, feels serious. And it is heavy and it is serious. But here's, I want you to see this, the really good side of this. There are testimonies of people who've gone through. They've gone through biblical counseling. They begin to think through how they were looking at their marriage or their life. And, and there's testimony after testimony of people who who admit, I was hardened in my walk with God, hardened in my heart toward God. That was the source of my gossip. That was the source of my slander. It was the source of my anger. And they've come to a place of, of repentance, and now they openly testify. Some people can, some people can openly testify. I think, think of one individual in the PCA. He got addicted, he got addicted to uh, painkillers. Painkillers, serious painkillers because of... Uh, because of uh, just stress in his life. He was a pastor. Big, high-profile church in a big, high, high, uh, big city. And uh, he was teaching somewhere, and someone walked up to him. Um, he was teaching a little seminar somewhere, and someone walked up to him and said, how long have you been addicted? And he finally confessed the truth to this individual. Now, this person... Uh, Confessed to to General Assembly of 2,000 pastors there. In other words, the freedom, it it busts through, it breaks through. What 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 are these 2,000 pastors anyway? My God has rescued me with the power of, of his saving work in my life. 
So I'm just, I'm telling you that. Thank you, elders. <laughs> Thanks for getting together with me. I have, I'm seeing something I didn't see before. And of course, this is part of the effect of sin. Sin blinds us. We're not as wise as we think. That's why we need each other. That's why we need church. That's why we need scripture. We're not as wise as we think. And of course, the flesh in us resists us completely. And one other thought, we often, we often criticize the process instead of repent. In other words, oh, pastor, you were so impatient with me. So, oh, I'm sorry about that. Well, in other words, as, as someone is trying, the elders are trying to help someone with something, they usually criticize the elders themselves. Well, okay, we can do this better, but that's actually not the issue. <laughs> it's been a, multiple times, actually several times, where I've been in a situation where someone's trying to make me the problem in their marriage. <laughs> I mean, that is a, that's pretty amazing. I mean, if you could just fix me, you're going to be okay as a couple? I'm like, okay, all right, let's work on that. Are you all tracking with this? It was a desperate, clutching at straws. And I, I said, if I am somehow the, the answer, please, by all, by all means, um, help me. Because <laughs> I, I don't, are you all tracking with this? So we attack the process. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that in your relationship with your, your, your wife or husband? You attack the process instead of what they're actually saying. I want you to know that, man, there is freedom. There's freedom in Christ. Someone can openly confess, I was under the power of a hardened heart. I gossiped because I, I saw someone else's prestigious life, someone else's rank. I saw someone else's life. I saw someone else's possessions. I was angry. And now I see how God has loved me in Christ. And I can be free from this. Test yourselves. In a sense, we do it every Sunday. We take the Lord's Supper. We test ourselves. You being here, I want to assure you that the progress in the Christian life includes perseverance. Coming to receive the ordinary means of grace, preaching, prayer, the Lord's Supper, God is granting you persevering grace. You're continuing to repent. Oh, and he's active and he's working. So I want to commend you to this process of, commend this process of being, of testing yourself. And may we all be teachable. This includes me, me to you, me to my brothers in the presbytery to continue to submit to my brothers and to listen to them. And I hope you will want this. I hope you will desire this. I hope you'll say, I I can't live the Christian life without this kind of accountability. Oh, help me not hinder this process. And so let me pray. Our Father, thank you for your care for us, that the care that we, we enjoy has real shape to it. It has shape. Lord, this is 
far more than attending some kind of religious event. This is our very life, our life shaped by your care. I want to thank you for the journey that we're on, for the continual feeding of your people that you you engage in by Scripture and by the bread and the cup. Lord, we thank you that everything is subservient for our salvation, including the authority and care of the church. And so we love you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.